Richard North Patterson has special reason to celebrate the publication of his latest novel. Indeed, the book, The Trial, represents a triumph over an unexpected obstacle he faced in the publishing industry. It's a cautionary tale about preparing for and managing a crisis. In this episode of Crisis Ahead, Patterson discusses how he responded to the challenge and what others can learn from his experience. Thanks for joining me today on Crisis Ahead, Rick. Well, great to be here, Edward. Many listeners know that you've written 22 novels, been on the New York Times bestseller list 16 times, and have sold more than 25 million books. The recent publication of your latest book, The Trial, created a crisis for you as an author. Can you tell me what happened and why it happened? Uh, sure. I mean, and I, can, I, I will say to some extent I anticipated uh, this crisis because for those not familiar with the book, uh, I decided to write a novel which dealt with some of the thornier areas of race in America, including the rise of white nationalism, uh, voter suppression uh, in, intended to limit the participation of non-whites, uh, the difficulties of um, unequal law enforcement, discriminatory law enforcement, and George Floyd obviously being an example of that, um, and the problems for black defendants in getting a fair trial in racially charged cases. So I invented a plot um, which you know essentially deals with those issues, and I have three point-of-view characters, one white and two black. Uh, I knew by doing this I was running into trouble with what one called the new theology in publishing, which is that only a non-white author uh, can write through the, the point of view of non-whites, particularly about problems which, while they should concern us all, affect minorities in particular, like voter suppression, for example. Is this a new challenge for authors, and what impact has it had on their writing careers? You know, this has been enough of a problem that Zadie Smith wrote about it in New York uh, Review of Books in 2019, saying that identity authorship, as I call it, would have rendered her entire career impossible because she's written uh, through multiple identities. But even if this had not been obviously on a radar screen, um, it became so in uh, 2020 with the publication of American Dirt, where Gene Cummins was castigated for writing as a basically a white person. Um, uh, she had some Hispanic heritage about a Mexican mother and son trying to cross the U.S. border. Um, so I was aware of this problem. Um, I can't claim innocence. What chances did you think you'd have that you'd be able to overcome this challenge? I did think uh, that if I did the book well enough, um, uh, that it, that I would be able to surmount that. At least I thought there's a fair chance I could. Uh, in order to do so, I went to Georgia. I interviewed 50 people, Georgia being the setting for the book, um, uh, half of whom at least were black Georgians. Um, uh, I was very careful to listen closely and to make their um, narrative inform the events and also the psychology of my characters. No one, when they read the manuscript, claimed that it was in any way racially insensitive and obtuse. But what I found was that didn't matter. Um, roughly 19 publishers um, um, rejected the manuscript, not you know on the basis of uh, of 
quality, but on the basis of my ethnicity. I mean, I was told basically that I wasn't quote a marginalized voice and here, therefore my contribution was, wasn't welcome. I was told I would be quote, justly criticized for attempting this, that I was open quote, too white for black people, close quote. Um, you know, that it just wasn't the right, right kind of book for me to return to fiction, et cetera, et cetera. In one case, um, a publisher read my manuscript immediately, called up my agent, said, I love this book. Uh, I just need to talk to some of the young people in my publishing house. And that killed it. So uh, I was presented with the unpleasant reality uh, that things were not only as bad as my agents told me you predicted it would be, it, would, it was worse than that. Um, and the question was then, you know, Edward, what to do? Uh, did I just allow this book to die um, and accept the, uh, the judgment of publishers based upon a opinion, which I think is antithetical, both the spirit of literature and uh, more broadly, a pluralist democracy, or did I fight back? And I determined to fight back. So what did you do, Rick? Um, and the first thing I did with the help of a friend is find an independent publisher uh, who was willing to take this on. Um, and then I did everything I could to make sure that the book was visible um, and you know, ultimately to raise the issue, the underlying issue uh, of what I call literary apartheid um, because the issue is so much bigger than my book. It has to do with uh, what kind of literature we want to have and what kind of society we want to be. So we can talk more about the particulars of what I did, but the critical decision was that I was not going to allow this book to languish um, uh, because I believed in the book, um, uh, because of the principle, and also because I didn't want to let down uh, the 50 or more interviewees who shared with me their own lived experience and trusted me to translate it. So uh, that was where I found myself uh, in, you know, uh, roughly February, I guess, of last year. Many publishers have no problems publishing books about controversial topics. But in your case, most of them chose not to take advantage of the opportunity. Why do you think that happened? Well, it's sort of a, 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 a race-based political correctness. Uh, about which which publishers are very leery. And let me say something about that. This is not prim primarily a problem that um, that I would say that minorities, non-white people have with my book. This is a white people's project. Um, and I dare say that the publishers in Manhattan who turned it down based on demographics of publishing were overwhelmingly whites who had no direct experience of the, um, of the difficulties in discrimination faced by the black Georgians who shared with me their own very difficult experience of race. Um, and so the remarkable effect is that they ended up suppressing the voices of, uh, of, 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 of non-whites who shared their experience with me. Uh, and yet, uh, having not had any of those experiences themselves and knowing very little, I would say, about the directly about the problems of race in America, they uh, flatter themselves that they are the literary benefactors of Black America. So there's a kind of uh, censorious, self-congratulatory condescension uh, 
um, in, in, in publishing. Uh, and it is very, very hard um, uh, to get past. Um, but again, I don't think that, I, no one explained to me actually how censoring a book, preemptively censoring a book, you know, preventing publication on the basis of the author's race helps anyone. No one's ever been able to rationally explain to me what that actually accomplishes. Um, uh, but uh, it, it is a very, very ingrained, uh, uh, ingrained thing. And, you know, the spirit of, of, of kind of like Twitter moms, uh, which has a lot to do this, you know, the fear of a, um, of a noisy minority has a lot to do with this as well. Most companies and organizations and government agencies uh, are surprised by a crisis when it happens. You, of course, uh, knew what you were getting into and saw the crisis coming. Uh, when and how did you start to uh, prepare uh, to respond to the crisis? Well, the, f the first thing, of course, was to find a publisher who was willing to take this problem on, knowing um, of the difficulties in Post Hill Press and my uh, editor, Adam Bello, well, were willing to do that. The second was deciding how we were going to approach it. I mean, I hired <clears throat> a public relations uh, specialist. I hired a book PR specialist. I hired a social media specialist. And uh, Adam and I determined to take on directly the issue of, you know, creative segregation. Um, and so I wrote a, uh, a widely read essay, which ran in the, the front page of the uh, Weekend Review of the Wall Street Journal. Um, I wrote another for The Bulwark. Uh, I've been asked now to write for the Times of London Literary's supplement on uh, the same subject. Um, and um, um, I felt that on principle, uh, it was important to talk about the issue, but I also felt that um, by taking on, I directly raised the question of the quality of the book and asked people to judge for themselves. And a key thing I did was open a Substack uh, account and run roughly the first half of my book serially to so that readers could see for themselves what the book actually was. I mean, so all those things uh, were an effort to uh, address the problem of not having a, a larger publisher and the resources of a larger publisher behind me. Um, and, you know, the uh, momentum against uh, uh, it being received as a, as a novel, as opposed to another artifact in the culture wars. And what impact did those efforts have? Uh, some, I, I certainly, I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure that I was really aspiring to be a spokesman on a subject, but was something I realized that because of my, uh, the, my professional capital, if you will, I had a foundation for talking about this. Um, uh, imagine a plight of a first novelist who writes a worthy book from a point of view of uh, identity other than his racial identity. And it's not only quashed, not only has the book quashed, but maybe the literary career quashed. And so I also felt there was a larger obligation to raise the implications of this far beyond, uh, far beyond me. And, and the fact is I could. So there has been some discussion of this, whether I will change 
heart, any hearts and minds in publishing uh, remains to be seen. My sense is from people who cover uh, the publishing industry that many people in publishing are frustrated and or embarrassed by this whole problem, but really can't, don't feel they can go on the record. Uh, and so we will see uh, how the publishing world deals with, um, you know, books written from a diverse point of view. Um, you know, obviously, you know, if you follow this to its logical extreme, uh, Anna Karenina um, and Madame Bovary should never have been published because their authors were, were men. Um, but, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know whether I'm going to succeed in making a dent. I certainly um, hope um, and expect that it will make some difference. And why do you think the publisher you wound up working with uh, decided to take the plunge and publish your book? Well, you know, for one thing, I just don't think they give a damn. Um, I mean, I think it, I think Adam's spirit is that publishers should uh, publish controversial books. In uh, in particular, I think he is is I am resistant to the whole notion that identity is all when you're writing fiction, uh, because that ignores, you know, a few small factors like um, um, a talent for narrative, the ability to create a setting, uh, psychological acuity uh, as necessary assiduous research, the ability to, to write dialogue that actually sounds like it was spoken by human beings. Um, um, you know, all the things that go into making fiction, but most of all, um, the engines of of, of not only I think good fiction, but the engines of a healthy democracy, um, imagination, and empathy. Um, you know, I think Adam and I we disagree politically a lot, uh, but I think we are agreed upon um, what is important um, to a quality body of literature. Because one of the impacts of this is that, you know, Edward, you and I and readers will never know how many books are lost to us, not only because um, behind the closed doors of publishing houses, they are turned down the basis of identity, but because authors recoil from writing um, from a, a different identity of their own because they're afraid. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, the thing that's so terrible about preemptive censorship is that it's invisible. We don't know. Uh, what we don't know. If there's a fight about whether a particular book that we all know about, To Kill a Mockingbird, for example, uh, should be available in libraries, we can quarrel about that because we know it's happening and we, can and we can talk about the substance of the book. But we can't talk about the substance of art that we never see. Um, and that's what's particularly egregious about uh, preemptive censorship. What impact has the controversy had on book sales or the opportunity to have others review your book? Well, I think, um, it, you know, it. I've never had a book so unreviewed uh, as this one. And I've always counted on reviews to help um, steer readers. I mean, I read reviews, respond to reviews in, in selecting the books that I, I read. And I generally... Uh, my books have been very well received by uh, readers and, and, and reviewers. I feel very fortunate in that way. 
Uh, but I mean, there largely has been just a, a silence. And I think that, um, I mean, there are a variety of reasons for that, I would assume. Not all of them are uh, uh, insidious, but I think a lot of it is, you know, I just don't want to deal with this problem. So I'll review somebody else. I mean, I think there also is a tendency, and I understand it, to review the books of people who um, who have been historically underrepresented in literature, uh, by which I mean folks who are other than straight white people. Um, and so I think that figures into, I'm, I'm fine with, with really seeking out, uh, you know, new writers from uh, different backgrounds. But I, I do think that uh, preemptive censorship had its effect in this case. Um, and I, it concerns me that uh, I would become another lesson to writers on, in what to avoid and in playing it safe. And I, I, I say, I mean, do we really need like a white people's literature for white people? I'm like, how many more books do we need about the angst of young professionals in Manhattan or Brooklyn? I mean, young white professionals. Uh, but, you know, I, I worry that we're headed toward an anodyne uh, white people's literature of self-contemplation. And I'm really not sure we that's what we need. Do you think this form of censorship is the new normal? Or do you think it's just a trend and it'll fade over time? Well, I certainly have had publishers express to me the hope that it is um, a phase. Um, I don't think anyone knows. Um, I certainly don't think that, um, you know, there is a sign that, you know, the Twitter mobs that people are worried about are going to be suddenly become more reasonable because Twitter is not the home of reason um, for a lot of people. It's the home of, let's get ourselves spun up and angry. Um, you know, social media plays a role in this and, and as it does frequently, not a happy one. So, I mean, the, the truth is, I don't know. What I am content with is I, that I have done everything I can uh, to stand by this book I uh, have it read on the merits. I mean, if you look at the Goodreads uh, in Amazon reviews, you know, they're running like 4.5 out of five. Um, and that's with allowances for the people that give it a zero and say, I hate this guy for doing this. So, I mean, I think readers are responding just fine. The problem is getting the book in the hands of more readers. And I think, um, you know, my experience may well be disheartening uh, to other authors. And I, I certainly regret that. Are your public relations efforts going to continue or have they subsided and you'll just uh, let the momentum carry forward on the sales and marketing and publicity for your book? Well, at some point, you know, you can't live your problems forever. Uh, I mean, the fact is I'm looking at a major back surgery in September and that will keep me amused. Um, in some other way. So, I mean, I think this is fine. And I mean, I continue to speak about it. I, uh, uh, as I say, I have a, a column coming up in the Times Literary Supplement of London. Uh, I'm going to be appearing at book festivals on the subject um, going forward. But, um, you know, it, it, at some point you have to say, 
I have done everything I can um, to deal with a particular problem, and I can think of nothing more to do. Uh, and once you've done that, then at least you're content that you've not been steamrolled by whatever the problem is. Well, based on your experience, Rick, with this crisis, what advice do you have to share with others about preparing for and responding to crisis situations? Well, I would say anticipate um, to the extent you can what there will be. We can't always anticipate a crisis. Uh, but the second is don't be paralyzed. Don't be indecisive. Uh, get the best advice you can. Um, think hard about what it is that you want to do to deal with it uh, and then be proactive. I mean, I think that uh, indecision is probably the worst thing. I mean, don't let time go by any, any more than you need to um, before you come up with a plan and you execute that plan to the best of your ability. I'm afraid we're almost out of time for today's episode. But before we go, I'd like to know what you think is the most important thing listeners should take away from our conversation today. Well, I, I want to return to the substance of the book, uh, which is that, you know, uh, the fissures of race and the misunderstandings of race, the anger and fear around race uh, is a still a defining part of our society and our politics. Um, and that the more we think about that and the more we try to address it in a positive way, the more empathy we have for people in our situation, the better we will do. I mean, that was why I wrote the book in the first place. And even more than, you know, that the problems of, uh, of identity authorship, uh, I want people to take away my original intention in writing a book, which is we need to think harder about race and do better about, uh, about addressing it uh, than we have done. Well, thanks again for joining me today, Rick, on Crisis Ahead. Well, thank you, Edward. Appreciate it. That's it for this edition of Crisis Ahead. My guest today was best-selling author Richard North Patterson. Be sure to come back next week for more advice and insights on preparing for, managing, and recovering from a crisis. Or subscribe to Crisis Ahead wherever you get podcasts. Each week, I interview government officials, corporate executives, and experts who share their advice and insights about a variety of crisis management and crisis communication topics. My guests have included Jay Johnson, who's the former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Isabella Guzman, who's the Administrator of the Small Business Administration, and officials of the Department of Defense and Federal Emergency Management Agency. My guests have taken deep dives into a variety of topics, such as the crisis management lessons to be learned from HBO's succession, how to prepare for any crisis situation, and how members of the next generation of crisis communicators are being trained and educated. Be sure to follow me on Forbes.com, where I'm a leadership strategy senior contributor covering the latest crisis-related news, topics, and issues. For more information, visit my website at publicrelations.com. Remember, it's not a matter of if a crisis will hit your organization or company, it's when. And the sooner you are prepared for it, the better.